welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 28 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome Moira. Hello Dave, hello everyone. So this episode is number 28, and we're going to talk over the next two episodes actually about sleep and cancer, and this episode's going to be a bit more about some of the clinical aspects, so what sort of sleep problems people with cancer get, and some approaches to treating that and sleeping better, either in people who've had cancer or um, are struggling with cancer and cancer treatment. And then the next episode, we'll talk a bit more about some of the more technical aspects about cancer biology and how that ties in with some emerging research about the circadian rhythm and sleep regulation and how that may impact on cancer treatment in the future. So we hope you're enjoying this podcast series and as I said this is episode 28 so we've been going for a good while now. It's a long time isn't it? It is indeed. So if you like the podcast series write us a review on iTunes and we're always interested in um, ideas for podcasts or if there's topics you want us to cover send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. So what's been topical about sleep for you this month Maura? Of course we had World Sleep Day March 16 and that, that's good. That was really a great international event. Just really awareness raising is the key and uh, there was a lot of media interest in Australia. The media always want to have new angles on sleep. Even though sleep is still a relatively new topic, they don't like to just talk about World Sleep Day per se. They like to have a special angle. So it's always, an, it's always a bit of a challenge to get something interesting out mm-hmm. there. So what we decided to do was just see six key people around Australia and what they're doing in their own research, in their own worlds, in their own labs. And the media loved it. There right. was non-stop probably two days before, during and after of media, you know, all across social media, print, radio, TV. It was really, really good. So, because, I mean, any opportunity we we get, we, we, you know, we take to actually promote the importance of sleep mm-hmm. and trying to better people's lives through better sleep. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah. It was a really, really good effort. Yeah, it was good. What, what about you? What, what's, what have you noticed has been topical this month? Well, Qantas got a lot of airplay. Because they launched their direct flights from Perth, West Coast Australia, direct to London. Were you on it? No. No, that was never going to happen. But, you know, as you know, my son Will's got an obsession about planes, so he did make sure we've already flown on the Dreamliner. Mm. And listeners to this podcast will know we've already spoken to Qantas about how they've tried to prepare the flight specifically for Mm. what they call now ultra-long-haul travel. Yeah. Not just long-haul travel, yeah. but a 17-hour flight to London. So congratulations. So Qantas have launched that yep. flight. And they had plenty of guinea pigs on board, like literally yeah. collecting data and their research continues. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to benefit us all, really. Absolutely. And nice to see that commitment to not just putting people on a plane and yeah. transporting them somewhere, yeah. but trying to work out how to do it in a healthy Yep. Way so that yeah. people can arrive healthy. Exactly, just the, the meal times, the transit lane, transit lane, the transit lounge stuff, pre and post. It's going to be really interesting. I know yep. someone that was actually on it and thought it was marvelous. And the Qantas had a wonderful thing at the Australian Embassy in London. It was hobnobbing. There was Barry Humphreys and all the other famous Australians. <laughs> so it's a shame we weren't on it. Maybe next time. Yeah, Qantas. maybe next time. We need to pl- plug a bit more uh, Moira, and then yeah. we'll get that invite. That's right. 
And another topical thing is that VicHealth, they partnered last year with the Sleep Health Foundation Mm -hmm. and wanted to do a specific rapid review looking at the research in the area of sleep in young people, so specifically 12 to 25-year-olds and how that impacts on their well-being, specifically really the mental health. That's ready and just, well, it's being launched, so we'll put a link to that on the show notes for people to have a look at that. It's got some really interesting information and around the importance of sleep in young people, particularly insofar as it, as we already know, that poor sleep then can be a predictor of poor mental health later on. Yeah. So it's so important that people, with the, sort of the younger people think, ah, whatever, I'll stay up late, I'll have poor sleep. But it is actually very important, to, but it's so hard to get the messages through to, yeah. to younger people. So that's another podcast in itself, I guess, but just an interesting topical thing. Yeah, congratulations. You know, really great work that the Sleep Health Foundation is doing with, with your assistance and yeah. your sort of hours that you're putting into it <laughs> as a volunteer. So yeah. well done. Thanks, Dave. So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep and cancer. So why talk about uh, cancer and sleep? Well, it turns out, not surprisingly, that sleep problems are pretty common in people with cancer, not just when they first get a diagnosis and you'd sort of expect in some respects that people won't sleep well with that acute stress and the sort of change in circumstances, um, but also through treatment. Sometimes that's more related to the medical aspects of treatment. But then also once they're out the other side, if people are successfully have their cancer treated and are cancer survivors, a surprising number of them have sleep problems in the longer term. And it's not often an area that's well looked at or well catered for. So we wanted to sort of draw some attention to that and highlight some of the research that's been done to help people who are cancer survivors about see what they can do to improve their sleep. Now, it's not just sleep disturbance that people with cancer can get. So it can be as well feeling too sleepy, too tired or too fatigued the next day and increasingly as cancer treatments get better there are more people who come out the other side and are survivors of cancer and have these ongoing sleep issues. So when it's been systematically looked at sleep problems like insomnia so difficulty getting to sleep difficulty staying asleep is estimated at somewhere between a third and six out of ten cancer survivors and about 40 percent of people will have moderate to severe insomnia during the treatment phase if they're having chemotherapy with their first cycle but then about two-thirds of people report trouble staying asleep both after the diagnosis itself then through treatment and out to one year after treatment so insomnia is a really common problem in people with cancer both through treatment and and after treatment. Fatigue or tiredness is similarly common and it's also estimated at between 30 to 60 percent of cancer survivors with symptoms going out to a year but then a quarter to a third of people experiencing fatigue symptoms out to 10 years. You know, I saw someone today who's three years post cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment and still reporting fatigue. Mm-hmm. Interestingly though they'd sort of felt well you know what I've survived cancer so fatigue's part of my burden to carry in life, but I'll I'll wear that. Weren't they seeking not really specific? It was sort of on the side, really. Yeah, it was yeah. on the side, completely incidental. And yeah. that's one of the surprising things for me in this situation I'll sometimes see is people just say, you know what, I'll, I'll take that. Mm. I, I've beaten cancer. Yeah. I'm feeling tired, but you yeah. know what? Well, yeah. whatever. Mm. But but there are actually things that can be done about that. And there are potentially reasons why people may feel tired after cancer treatment. There's a couple of different theories. One is that it's to do with an inflammatory process and elevated levels of cytokines, even well after treatment has settled. And other theories are that there are actually alterations to the sympathetic nervous system or the way the adrenaline and energy axis works. 
some t- some sorts of chemotherapy can impact on that and other types of treatment may impact on that. And it's not just fatigue and insomnia. There's lots of other sleep disorders that can occur in people with cancer, circadian rhythm problems, obstructive sleep apnea, restless legs, which actually occurs commonly when there's changes in iron levels. Mm. And having chemotherapy really does change your iron levels because you're destroying blood cells and building up and repairing blood cells. But it's not really been well studied. There's one systematic review I came across in cancer medicine in 2015 that showed really that most of the papers looking at sleep disorders in cancer really ask questions about do you sleep poorly and would then equate that as a sleep problem. So it may not be a diagnosable insomnia as we know it. But I guess it's a very hard group of people to study, isn't it? When they're already sometimes very, very ill with their treatment. This sort of knocks them around so much. It'd be pretty hard pressed to ask them to be part of a sleep trial as well sometimes. I think it's, do you think it's probably one of the practical things or just hasn't been on people's radars until more recently? I don't know. So part of one of the things I thought about when I read that paper was I review a lot of papers for journals. Mm. And one of the common things I see when authors aren't primarily sleep people, Mm. but are doing sleep stuff as an add-on to some other research, like treating cancer, but you add on a sleep questionnaire, is they'll actually equate poor sleep with insomnia yes and so they'll ask the question do you sleep poorly yeah yes or no yes. but then the headline or title of the paper is people with cancer have high levels of insomnia yeah. but poor sleep is not insomnia and often the language is not interchangeable and it's pretty loosely yes. used so yeah, i reviewed a paper recently that really people had sunk unfortunately millions of dollars into this paper in a big public health message and it asked only about you yeah, do you sleep poorly but was then trying to translate that to making big public health messages about insomnia for a public health campaign. Uh, but in actual yeah. fact, they've not corrected, collected right. the right data. Yes. They'd, because they're public health experts, they'd statistically analysed it appropriately and all the methodology was great, just hadn't had a sleep person in to yeah. know what the right question was to ask up front. But that's a good, I mean, it's a good point though, because sleeping poorly... It doesn't really tell, like you and I, doesn't really tell us enough. We don't know what that means. I wonder what they thought it meant, like what the specifics yeah. of it were. Well, they translated it in the headline That's... to being sleep duration. But in fact, they hadn't asked yeah, people about sleep that, duration. Yes. They just said, do you sleep yeah, poorly? It's very broad. It's too broad, isn't it? But it's better than nothing. Yeah, I true. Think, just to get sleep. Sometimes we can get a bit finicky about terminology when at least it's out there. At least oh, it's a research paper. Me pedantic? <laughs> what, what do you say, Moira? <laughs> It's giving away a bit of my nature. <laughs> yes, no comment. More <laughs> over and above the physical aspects of cancer, why would someone be prone to insomnia? For a variety of reasons is the simple answer. And I want to acknowledge up front at the outset that people with cancer is a very broad summary term, isn't it? There's, yep. there's a whole range of different ages, different stages, different approaches and reactions to that diagnosis. I guess we can just speak generally in that people who may be prone to insomnia once they've had the diagnosis, or especially at diagnosis, and then later on we'll talk about treatment, is the, the shock and the adrenaline, the hyperarousal. Mm-hmm. And also the, what is very common to nearly everyone with cancer or not, when they're distressed about something, people spend a lot of space, a lot of time thinking in the future all the what-ifs, mm-hmm. and a lot of time thinking in the past, all the ruminations and reflecting and wondering and pondering. So particularly in cancer, a lot of people report to me, and the research um, reflects this too in some qualitative data, that people talk about, spend a lot of time thinking, especially when it's quiet at night and they, they can't sleep, about why me too, what what happened, what, what was it, and they really spend a lot of time trying to work through what the risk factors were. Even things like, must be those overhead power lines near our house, 
It's the discounted cheap cleaning products that I should knew I shouldn't have bought those ones. It, so really, sort of really trying to get to the point of what, what you know, where was the carcinogen? Why did I mm-hmm. get it? Why me? That's similar in general for insomnia anyway. Yep. People always think sometimes they're thinking about was it was it the MSG I had? Was it the coffee I had at four o'clock? I shouldn't have. It's sort of too much. A lot of reflection. Yep. And a lot of rumination and a lot of what-if thinking, general distress around that. During the treatment, people with cancer are, are probably they're just as prone to to the to the ongoing sleep disturbance. And people often report that, say, like chemotherapy might be a bit different to radiotherapy. People re- report different things along that anecdotally, that sometimes they're fine with the radiotherapy. Generally speaking, everyone's pretty knocked around by the, the chemotherapy, and for the same reasons, they can, as I talked about, a diagnosis that can feel obviously a bit wired, a bit hyper aroused, a bit sort of upset. There can be a lot of steroid use. The steroids are very much a, to keep people awake. Just the general sickness, they feel really rotten and un- unsettled, and general agitation as well, being a bit hot sometimes, lots of changes in body temperature regulation, going to the toilet, and just general discomfort. They're the types of things that people make people much more susceptible to sleep sleep disturbance. And then after treatment too, as the, as the research says, it, uh, some, most most people do report it settles down after treatment. But as you just re- talked about before, a lot of people report that at least up to a year, maybe a few years later, they still have some kind of sleep disturbance and or some f- lasting fatigue. And so people people react to that in different ways. As yeah. you, your client today said, oh, well, you know, I'll take that. Yeah. And other people, it causes them a lot of distress and they want to do better and they yeah. wonder what they can do about that. And, and in terms of what people can do, there's good research showing cognitive behavioural therapy, just straight out CBT for insomnia works well in cancer survivors and mm. people with cancer as well as for a whole range of other conditions. We've talked about that in other episodes, but just refresh for us, what are the key components of cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia? Yeah, the brief, there's five main elements that are sort of across the, everyone agrees that part of what a CBTI. First one, sleep restriction, but I call it sleep consolidation. And it really just means limiting your time in bed awake. So making sure to, you know, to reduce that mismatch between sleep opportunity and sleep ability. So get people not lying there awake for too mm-hmm. long. Just think, look, you've got to get up, you've got to get out of bed. Stimulus control is another key principle, the key key component of CBTI. And that's really trying to encourage the physiology of sleep rather than the physiology of wakefulness. Mm-hmm. So get the iPads, get the phones, get everything out of the bedroom yep. and try and really have a much less stimulation and more trying to get people to be less stimulated, basically, is the, is the thing there. Sleep hygiene, which everyone knows of generally, just a general healthy sleep tips, which uh, was ineffective in isolation, or fairly just not, not that effective. I mean, I shouldn't say ineffective, but it doesn't do that much on its own. But as part of the package, it's, it's quite helpful and an important component of CBTI. Cognitive therapy is an important part of CBTI. So it's really restructuring, trying to identify, then address unhelpful beliefs and thinking that can develop into insomnia and can reinforce poor sleep over a longer period of time. And we've talked about that before. Can pe- people can refresh their memories on earlier episodes on insomnia. And relaxation training, any type of relaxation is thought to be a key component of CBTI. But the jury is out. I've never seen any research paper that says exactly what type of relaxation yeah. you're meant to do. And so really the truth is these days it's mostly mindfulness-based techniques are used to reduce the hyperarousal. And even though my learned colleagues would say, but don't say that mindfulness is a relaxation technique because it's actually not technically. Yep. But to use mindfulness to actually use that component of CBTI to reduce people's hyperarousal. 
to let them just calm themselves down a little bit. Thanks for that background. So to get a better idea about some of the particular issues facing people with cancer who are going to look at treatment for insomnia, we talked to a psychologist who works in this area. Justine Diggins is a senior clinical psychologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre who's been involved in developing a program for people who are having trouble with sleep with cancer called CanSleep. How did you actually get into talking about sleep in people with cancer? As a clinical psychologist, uh, obviously sleep is a part of what we learn about and is a a problem, a common problem that kind of co-occurs with a lot of psychological problems that people face. And I've worked in oncology here at Peter Mac for about 12 years Mm -hmm. now and and some time ago, really kind of around the time when I first started working here, we decided to produce some patient information sheets on some common problems in oncology settings and one of those was sleep and I got got the sleep brochure to write (laughs) and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed kind of swatting up on sleep in in with you know people who have cancer and finding out more about what a big problem it actually is and how cognitive behavioral therapy approaches as well can be still so effective with people with cancer so how's that evolved and what's now the service that you offer yeah, for people well, with cancer? fast forward quite a few years sure. and the literature's evolved a lot in that time and, and in cancer in particular and, and CBT has really been quite well studied now and a lot of people were talking about the need for various sort of approaches embedded in cancer care. Mm-hmm including self-help approaches as well as more intensive approaches. And so we just got to a point where we thought we've really got to do something about this. And so we were very lucky to get some funding Mm -hmm. from the Victorian Cancer Survivorship Program uh, last year. And so we began developing what is our stepped care model where we have developed a resource, a self-help resource called the Can Sleep booklet for patients. And we begin by screening patients with some very simple screening questionnaires to work out, do they really have a sleep problem, a nighttime sleep problem? Are they? Is it because they're at high risk of sleep apnea or some other medical condition? If they do, we, we do actually refer to the sleep clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital for further assessment and review. But for people who have symptoms consistent with insomnia, we would talk about their problems a little bit with them and provide them with our Can Sleep booklet, which is aimed at patients sort of working through on their own the cognitive and behavioural strategies to address their sleep. So there's that tier of your step care program that's the self-help side. Mm -hmm. What's the next step up? So obviously we've found that about 50% of people, which is great, actually find that the booklet alone addresses their sleep problems. Mm -hmm. For those, though, that need ongoing support or intervention, we offer a group program, which is a cognitive behavioural group program. It involves four sessions, a pre-group assessment initially as well, just to make sure that the group's going to be the right fit. And then coming in for four sessions focused on the core cognitive and behavioural strategies for insomnia. And we've certainly found that the groups we've run so far have been really successful and people have found them very, very helpful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what are the common sleep problems that you see in people with cancer? Yeah, the common problems, they're actually very similar to the co- the problems in the general population in regards to sleep. So insomnia at night time, troubles yep. getting to sleep, staying asleep and early waking, but also sleep apnea and, and restless legs are yep. found at high rates. Insomnia symptoms are found in about six out of every 10 people who have cancer or who had cancer in the past. And that can go on for years, this higher rate of insomnia symptoms. 
And what about symptoms of tiredness during the day? Is that something that comes onto your radar as well? Absolutely. So fatigue is a very big problem for people with cancer and sometimes it's related to nighttime sleep problems and sometimes it isn't. But along with sleep problems, the emotional health and well-being of patients is a very big problem. So we know that sleep problems are related to depression and other mental health concerns. And when somebody's already dealing with a cancer diagnosis, that can become a very significant factor for people. It's a really interesting point that you talked about. You know, Not all fatigue in someone with cancer is going to be sleep-related. And one of the cognitive characteristics of people with insomnia can be attributional bias. That's right. <laughs> so often that's some of the work we do is trying that's to right. disconnect that to attribution. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, and it's really interesting as well because when you actually apply cognitive behavioural therapy, you also tease out what works and what doesn't. And, and you really get to work out once you improve people's sleep that if their fatigue is ongoing, then we know then that there, there are some other, other components going on for the person, probably related to having cancer or the treatment side of And so there's a standard sort of CBT for insomnia approach. How you deliver the groups, what does it look like in the way you deliver the groups? The groups, um, we have an initial process of working out, like I said, if the group is going to be suitable for the person. We get them to keep sleep diaries throughout the course of the group. And we'd begin by, by using that information from the sleep diaries to look at using sleep restrictions. So sort of shortening that, that sleep window at night time. We do find that people with cancer are so sort of desperate to catch up on sleep that they mm-hmm. start going to bed earlier and earlier to try and give themselves more opportunity for sleep. Yeah yet at the same time aren't sleeping much. Sure. <laughs> and we know that that's, that's, that leads to all sorts of problems. And so actually restricting their sleep would be one of the first things that we begin to do. Similarly, we try and sort of focus on some bad habits that people get into, which is spending too much time in bed not sleeping. So watching television, playing on their mobile phone, but more, most importantly, I guess, is worrying, spending yeah. a lot of time in bed worrying. And often that's cancer-related. It doesn't have to be, though. So we would start by focusing on those sort of two components. And what have you had to modify? So if you take Mm. a sort of off-the-shelf CBT approach, what have you had to change for people with cancer? That's a really good question. Sleep restriction is a really key strategy, but with people with cancer, their sleep needs are often higher. Mm -hmm. So we'd be very cautious and we'd certainly be keeping in really considering how much we would restrict people's sleep. So we might look at keeping naps much more than you would in in someone who doesn't have cancer and maybe slowly restricting that window rather than going in sort of hard and fast Uh because you really don't want to restrict their sleep beyond what what, what would be safe. It's a good point and we see that with other conditions too where the consequences of overshooting with sleep restriction mm. are high yeah, and people are really sensitive because they're yeah. already very fatigued. That's right. So That's right. we do have to be gentle, sort That's of gentle right. sleep restriction. Yeah. For people who are having trouble with sleep who've got cancer, what, what should they do? They should know that they're not alone for a start, that, that this is a really common problem. There are an awful lot of cancer symptoms and side effects as well, which will interfere with sleep. And this is where people with cancer, sort of their experience will be a little bit different. So mm-hmm. pain would be a really common problem that would interfere with sleep. But there are lots of other symptoms like needing to go to the loo a lot or having um, bowel problems that keep people awake at night, dry mouth. There's a lot of side effects that interfere with sleep. So often just going to um, your medical 
team or your GP and actually talking about these symptoms and how they impact sleep can sometimes lead to a significant change for people. And often they don't even think of doing that necessarily because in the bigger picture, they might not realise that there's something they can do about it. Do you see that people are like, I'm just going to beat the cancer. I'm not sleeping well, but I'm very focused and I'm just going to... It. That's right, and there's so many there's so many other things going on in their life that sometimes sleep kind of drops down on that on that list of priorities. Yeah, but it is important because it's going to help them participate with a lot of the other treatments they need to to get through. Absolutely, we know that um, fatigue is one of the sort of the key reasons why treatment regimes um, are, re- are reduced in their intensity or sometimes even stopped because okay. a person's fatigue levels are become problematic for them, as well as their mental health and well being, and just kind of coping with and getting through treatment. And what about for health professionals who are looking after people with cancer? How should they approach sleep? Mm, ask about it. Sure. <laughs> Again, in, in the bigger picture, it's often sort of forgotten about or or kind of skimmed over. And asking about it is really helpful. And also thinking beyond medications, because we know that, that medications are often people's first go-to, whereas yeah. in reality, cognitive and behavioural therapy is, has longer-term benefits yeah. for people. So to, to for health professionals to, to ask about sleep and to begin that dialogue, and for both patients and health professionals to, to sort of know and realise that, that there are these fantastic treatments through cognitive behavioural therapy, whether they be self-help, you know, all the stuff that you can do on your own, as well as with a specialised professional in which you can seek help and actually improve, improve sleep. Yeah, and I love the self-help resource you've developed. And it's so important to have some evidence-based resources available mm. rather than, you know, five ways to sleep better tonight that's and right. eat more kiwi fruit that's or right. do some other <laughs> crazy thing. So that's a really great resource. How can people access that and access the services? Well, we're just, we're actually just updating at the moment because we developed it for use within our hospital systems, Mm -hmm. but we've realised actually that so many people outside of our hospital system want, want access to it. So patients who attend other hospitals or patients, healthcare professionals around Australia. So we are just updating it at the moment to include a little section for healthcare professionals as well. Mm -hmm. And we will be putting it on our website when it's completed, which hopefully will be in a a month or so's time and people can download it free of charge and, and use it as much as they like. That's fantastic. And then what about the clinical service that you offer? How could people mm. access that? So our clinical services are for patients of Peter Mac or the Royal Women's and the Royal Melbourne Hospital. They can email in um, to the CanSleep email, which is cansleep at petermac.org, or just, they can have that conversation with their treating team and their treating team will make their referral for them. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, David. Great to know that there are people who can help, that there's specific psychologists in the cancer field actually really understanding and wanting to know more about sleep too and having some expertise in sleep. So it's great to see that it's on their radar. So Dave, why would someone with cancer be prone to fatigue? So much like the sleep disturbance or insomnia, there are a range of different reasons why someone with cancer may get fatigued. And some of it's more physiological and related to the cancer itself. So often one of the symptoms of cancer, even prior to diagnosis, is fatigue and tiredness. Absolutely, And it's not uncommon for somebody to have a cancer diagnosis and then to say, ah, you know, that's why I've been feeling this this badly for a long Mm. period of time. Mm. During treatment, there's additional reasons. So the whole treatment process is, you know, think what you're trying to do is kill off cancer cells. If it is a bystander effect, you kill off lots of normal cells as well and generate a massive immune response. Mm. Yeah, you'd Mm. expect to feel pretty tired. Notwithstanding all the Truing and froing from medical appointments and still trying to live a life and run a oh, household. Yeah, it's very and, busy being uh, unwell, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, everything else at the same time. And then after treatment, that's where it's a little less clear why. 
But yeah, up to a quarter of people are having fatigue going out to many years after they've recovered from cancer and survived cancer. And still, you know, open sort of question about why that might be and whether that's uh, an inflammatory sort of process, whether there are changes in the sympathetic nervous system or changes in sleep-wake regulation. And I'm sure there'll be a bit more research in this area over the years as this area gets a little bit more focus and as we do get more cancer survivors, more resources are put into, okay, how can you survive cancer well and mm. live well and feel well and return to feeling vital and back to your usual role? In terms of what generally would be done these days, there is quite a little research into non-drug approaches. So exercise just doesn't have to be super heavy-duty exercise, mm. but just being physically active is isn't, important. Isn't it great that that's, I mean, everyone anecdotally says that, but it's great that that's reflected in the research now too, like to know that it's, it's, a, it's a really key element to cope with everything to do with cancer and to sleep better with cancer, yep. that exercise is probably one of the main things as a, as a non-drug strategy. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be very active exercise. Mm. And there are some papers on yoga as exercise. Yeah. But there's also some papers on yoga as a mind-body treatment. Mm. Mm. So yoga is a way of not so much stress reduction, but worry management, yes. self-care, self-compassion, sort yeah. of nurturing you know, that yeah. type of approach. Yeah. And there's good research for some similar approaches in terms of stress management, mindfulness mm. uh, to help manage fatigue. And in the same way as there's been some nice research from some colleagues of ours looking at fatigue in people post-head injury, which we hope to talk about in future episodes, using cognitive therapy to target fatigue in cancer survivors has also been helpful. Mm. And challenging some of the negative thinking that can occur with fatigue and people get into just a cycle of getting caught up in the fatigue rather than feeling looking at what they can do to move forward and not be held back by it so much there are also some trials on medications really very little in this area so a stimulant so methylphenidate which is actually ritalin is the brand name for that Mm. there are a couple of small trials looking at that in people with end-stage cancer who are really quite unwell and feeling very fatigued showing it does improve quality of life and energy levels you know in the back in the 1930s and 1940s psychostimulants like methylphenidate and amphetamine were actually the first antidepressants so how it has that effect this was my pick of the month which i'll come to a bit later in the podcast but how it has that effect may be via that sort of depression pathway or it may be via an energizing sort of pathway not entirely sure but some effect in people who are very sick. And whilst there has been a push to use some medications like modafinil, which is used for other things like narcolepsy or shift work sleep disorder, in some studies when it's been more formally looked at, modafinil hasn't really been any better than placebo, even though it's got a strong placebo effect. So, Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it? so I've yeah. Had, anecdotally, I've had yeah. patients using modafinil for cancer fatigue, saying yeah. that's been a really helpful strategy, yeah. but that's in a completely uncontrolled setting. Yes. And... Was it the modafinil? Yeah. Was it placebo? Yeah. Don't know. Does it matter? Exactly. You know, if they're feeling better, mm. I think, you know, at a one-on-one level, managing people clinically, mm. but, you know, I'm not too fast. Mm. Um, In that setting, a, it might not matter. Yeah. Well, we've got your expertise on all things medical. What about comments on other sleep problems, not just the insomnia type thing? Yeah, so some of the other sleep problems, such as circadian rhythm, sleep disturbance, absolutely makes sense that someone who's been unwell with cancer and been through the ringer in terms of medical treatment is just not going to have a well-regulated body clock. Their own intrinsic systems are just out of whack. Mm. 
and so sleep wake the whole body clock cycle you'd expect that to be out of whack and then one of the key ways of getting a circadian rhythm back on track is getting engaged with the outside world the light dark cycle and being physically active Mm. so maybe that's one of the way exercise actually works is getting people re-engaged in the you know one of the components of exercise maybe getting re-engaged with the outside world and more light dark exposure but yeah definitely optimizing the circadian rhythm is probably going to be important in improving fatigue and symptoms in cancer survivors and i think what we'll hear over the next few years is going to be more so the importance of the circadian rhythm Yeah, watch this space for sure. In terms of restless legs, as I talked about a bit earlier, it's really common when there's a lot of iron flux or change in iron levels and cancer treatment's a classic example of that. Mm. So making sure people have got adequate iron stores and if iron levels are a bit low, being on iron supplementation. And sleep apnea is common. It's common anyway. As we get older, it's uh, more common and people with cancer are not always, but often older so you'd expect that sleep apnea may be an issue in people with cancer and just add to tiredness and like someone i saw last week who'd attributed how bad they were feeling post-cancer to post-cancer fatigue in actual fact had severe sleep apnea and so oh. when i started them on treatment felt fantastic That's better. and their you know what had oh. been attributed as post-cancer fatigue recovered so do you think in that case is it hard, do you know whether they might have had it pre anyway did the sleep apnea develop you can't be sure. Yeah, so that had developed. a pretty tough couple of years mm. of being unwell and yeah. over that time had gained about 10 kilos. Okay. Yeah. And so probably mm. it was a little bit of sleep apnea. Then after being unwell for a couple of years and gaining some weight, yes. became quite a lot more a severe, sleep yeah, apnea. At least moderate, yeah. Yeah, that was causing them more of an issue. Mm. So look out for sleep apnea. So if people are looking for more information on sleep problems in cancer, there is information at the Cancer Council Australia website, cancer.org.au, and Cancer Australia, which is an Australian government website, at canceraustralia.gov.au. I've got to say, though, I looked at both of these resources, and there are some simple tips there, and they didn't extend to much more than sleep hygiene, so I was a bit disappointed, Moira, and uh, well, there's some scope. Yes, for... I was going to say, it's up to us to um, reach out and say, hey, do you want us to uh, liaise with you and update your, your fact sheets or your, your info sheets? Exactly. It's yeah. an opportunity for the Sleep Health exactly. Foundation. You I'll can... put it on my list. Yeah. <laughs> so we've come to the time of the podcast when we talk about the clinical tip of the month. Your turn this time. So what's, the, what's your clinical tip of the month? So mine's more a big picture sort of tip and more sort of medically orientated. But one of the things that struck me when looking at the literature around sleep and cancer was that the medical literature was very focused on sort of medical outcomes, survival, and not so much focused on symptoms. Mm. And then the research that was there on symptoms like insomnia, fatigue, those type of things, was more in the psychology literature rather than in the medical literature. So my tip is for people who are more in the medical side of things... Look in the psych literature. (laughs) <laughs> well, no. yeah, yeah, I'm not, not sure about that. <laughs> no, but it's really absolutely, you've got to tackle the cancer and do absolutely what you can to improve cancer survival, but don't lose track of actually having people living well at the same time as well. Don't be afraid to ask about sleep, and if they're not sleeping well or got sleep issues, yeah. be proactive in managing those or referring people on for help. I know that you do a lot of talks and so do I with different groups of health professionals. Have you actually thought to go to a group of oncologists or haematologists or etc and, and give talks on sleep? Has that happened? Because I know you have on, say, groups of psychiatrists and 
other people, neurologists? No, it is a specialty group that haven't really hmm. approached us. Yeah. I know some years ago I spoke at Peter Mac to oncology trainees about fatigue and yes. managing fatigue. Yeah. And I've also spoken to palliative care uh, specialists about sleep and managing sleep problems. But yeah, it's not a group, specialty group I have a big interaction with, mm. uh, unlike some other groups. Mm. So definitely scope for yeah. in, improving that. Now, in terms of pick of the month, Moira, what, what's your pick for this month? I came across a book. It's called Talk Before Sleep by Elizabeth Berg. And it's an, old, an oldie but a goodie. It's been around for more than 20 years. And I must say I haven't actually read it, but I have heard of it. I thought it was particularly interesting to talk about it in this podcast because it's talking about two women. It's a, it's actually fiction, but the the writer had a very dear friend who died of cancer. So she wanted to just sort of write about that but not talk about their relationship per se, but cre- created these two fictitious characters. I think they were called Ruth and Anne. And it was just all about their friendship and they just talk about everything. It was just the way women friendship can be, just really great chatters. And and then one of them gets diagnosed with cancer and the conversation turns a bit. And I think the title is about talk before sleep, meaning the ultimate sleep, I think, mm-hmm. that the, the untimely death of her dear friend, yeah. that she goes and, you know, went into a deep sleep forever and her friends were around and they were around her bed side as she as she died, and talked. You know, those in those pre days, and they all were talking, and it's all conversations about that. So apparently, it's a it's a very big tearjerker, mm-hmm. um, but a really important one as well, a really important book. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes. I recommend. It might be just of interest to to people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, nice tip. What about you? What we, what's your pick of the month? So mine's a book as well. So I read this book in the last couple of weeks, and loved it. Absolutely love this book. So it's called On Speed, (laughs) The Many Lives of Amphetamine. Wow. And written by Professor Nicholas Rasmussen, who's from the History and Philosophy of Science Department at University of New South Wales, so an Aussie, but written mainly about use of amphetamines uh, in the US in the 1930s, 1940s. Medically or illicitly? No, no, not not at all illicit. So. Yeah, medically. So that was where I was talked to a little bit earlier about methylphenidate and Ritalin. Yeah, yeah. But through the nineteen antidepressants, exactly. Yeah, antidepressants. Yeah. So through the nineteen thirties, yeah. amphetamine was was basically started in the nineteen twenties actually, developed as the very first of the antidepressants. Mm. And then it was amphetamine derivatives through the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties were essentially antidepressants. And mm. at one point enormous numbers of the population were on prescribed amphetamines so around 10 percent of the adult population being prescribed amphetamines and even our modern day antidepressants were designed to try to mimic the effect of amphetamines in terms of what did people like about amphetamines it was they got a bit more pep yeah feeling up feeling up and so modern antidepressants are essentially designed to have you feel a bit more pep and mm. a bit more up, mm. but without the dependence, tolerance, mm. uh, things suffered by amphetamines. Wow. So a good really, read. Yeah, yeah, really good book mm. and talks about the medical use of amphetamines mm. and how that then flowed over once the medical use got screwed down a bit, flowed over into illicit use of amphetamines, but also informed the development of modern antidepressants and the whole sort of field of pharmacology around depression. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the amphetamine use links, I thought, with depression in that um, people who are illicitly using a lot of amphetamines, when they come down from that, it's, it's, 
it's very depressing. It's very, it's very much a depressant. And I know that people who are on amphetamines prescribed by their medical doctor for a certain for certain condition can feel they feel rotten. They can really, really disturb their mood rather than improve their mood. Yeah, having said yeah. that, there's ad, there's quite a literature around adjunctive use of amphetamines mm. in depression. Mm. So you have someone on modern antidepressants yeah. and still feeling not a pep. Yeah. Adding, just adding a little bit, adding of, a bit of amphetamine or a psychostimulant as an adjunctive treatment, yeah. improving both depression and energy levels. Anyway, so it was really fascinating sort of read because okay. you know if you just if all you think about amphetamines is how it's the context in the 21st century is it's bad, you know it's methamphetamine yeah. and it's illicit use well, it's, and, yeah. and that's, things. That's the connotations, isn't it? That's yeah. the stigma for sure. So to get a, an idea of its historical context for me is really interesting. So I can highly recommend that book. Cool. So what's coming up? So a couple of meetings to look out for. So there's the uh, Sleep 2018 meeting in the United States in Baltimore in early June. There's the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicines meeting in Lucknow in October. I so want to go to that. Oh, come on I've then. Got to, yeah, I've got to make that happen this year. Yeah, well, we're able to confirm that we've got David White coming. Yes, that's and good. So, big name. Yeah, so it's a really good name to have a good international mm. uh, faculty. And then the week after that is the Australasian Sleep Association meeting the Sleep Down Under conference in Brisbane in October 17 to October yes, 20. of which I've put in a submission a couple of different things. One of them is for the another debate and the topic being so experts in the field, so, you know, funny, cheeky outgoing experts to be happy to do this sort of fun light-hearted debate topic being you know do we really sleep any less than we used to or mm-hmm. is that just fake news so it's going to be it's a good topic because obviously we we're sort of in an epidemic of people having inadequate sleep that's what i, I believe you know and sleep health foundation's got great data on that but there's also that stuff we've talked about a lot about the ancient civilizations and the you know they didn't sleep that much and, yep. and had sleep to they slept in different Lots. They didn't yep. sleep in one big block. So it's a good debate, but a bit of humour, etc. Sounds good. I've got to review the symposia over the next month or oh, so. Oh, please let it get through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll look, I'll, I'll, I'll look out for that one, Laura. So look out for our next episode, which we'll still be talking sleep and cancer, but a bit more into the biology and basic science. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Uh, it's always a pleasure. It's, it's our pleasure to be here. And we'd love you to send any suggestions to our email address, which is podcast at sleephub.com.au and of course as we said at the outset please leave us a review on iTunes thanks a lot this podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition